Hello and welcome to the Inside is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. As the Canadian wealth management industry evolves, there is growing pressure in the ranks to continually upgrade knowledge and services among Canada's leading and growing, established and more newly minted advisors, respectively. The landscape is becoming more and more competitive in terms of the proliferation of products, solutions, level of advice and services, as well as technologies used at all levels, the institutional level, the retail level, and also the direct-to-consumer level that are happening. The largest demographic cohort of investors, as measured by assets invested, is entering or already well into their retirement or decumulation phase. To add to the mix, markets are facing and experiencing this year a complex regime change as rising inflation and interest rates have ravaged both bonds and stocks at the same time. The demand for portfolio construction and guidance in this climate has never been higher in the history of the business. And that too means that the value of advice has never been higher as well than it is now, assuming advisors rise to the challenge. Here to share her insight on this evolution and discuss the trends shaping the wealth management business is Erica Toth, Director of Institutional and Advisory for Eastern Canada at BMO ETFs. Erica brings to the table experience in investment analysis, portfolio construction and trading of equities, fixed income, foreign exchange options, ETFs, and mutual funds. She's known for her attention to detail and consultative approach in providing support and education to advisors and portfolio managers. Erica is a CFA charter holder and has obtained several licenses with the Canadian Securities, Canadian Securities Institute in derivatives and options trading. She holds a Bachelor of Commerce, double major in finance and marketing, from John Molson School of Business at Concordia University in Montreal. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Erica, welcome. It's terrific to have you. Looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Pierre. I appreciate the, the chance to be here and chat with you. Awesome. Erica, for those of us who don't know you, please tell us about the arc of your career, what you do at BMO ETFs, and what's your heart at work on these days and in the context of the markets we're in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been with BMO for 12 years now. Um, I started uh, within the discount brokerage arm, so that allowed me, you know, to get all my trading licenses and, uh, you know, do my CFA charter at the same time. So really to get a better understanding of, of markets. Um, and then I moved over to BMO Global Asset Management. Uh, it was nine years ago in, in August, actually, of, of this year. Um, where I was helping advisors and portfolio managers understand and integrate ETFs for their clients. So at the time when I joined BMO GAM's ETF division nine years ago, there were six ETF providers in Canada. Um, so the right. landscape's really changed a lot over the last nine years. Um, it's become one of the best-selling investment vehicles. We've, we've had uh, significant growth to about... 22% per year in terms of the uh, the annual compounded growth rate um, right. to now we're at the point where ETFs uh, are approximately 320 million, uh, 20 billion, sorry, dollars uh, in, in terms of the Canadian ETF market. There's now 42 providers compared to the, the six that we were when, when I started uh, with the team here. Um, and there's about 1,271 listed products at the end of last month in Canada. So there's a lot more product out there uh, to wrap 
for, for advisors and portfolio managers to, to wrap their heads around, a lot more due diligence required. And so that's where myself and my colleagues come in. So to, to help advisors and portfolio managers with that homework and, and understanding the ins and outs of ETFs and how to analyze them and make sure that you know they're buying the best possible solution for their clients at the end of the day. And my role, I mean, in that nine years has evolved quite a bit as well. Um, so now I, I kind of wear two hats. I take care of not only the advisors and the, the portfolio manager uh, market for Eastern Canada, but I also wear uh, an institutional coverage hat as well. So I'm also working with asset managers, um, with with ICPM investment council firms, um, and also with with pension funds. Uh, so it's it's been exciting. I mean, experiencing all that that growth and watching the industry change so much, but also being able to learn. Uh, different parts of, uh, of of the market and and how different segments of the marketplace use ETFs. That's it's been really fascinating. Um, and you know, it, over that time, I think ETFs have become increasingly popular because of some of the pressures and some of the changes in the industry. I mean, I think as an industry, it's become a lot more fee sensitive, and ETFs definitely. Uh, you know, one of their key benefits has been their their lower fees, but they also bring you know tremendous amount of transparency. Um, they're highly liquid. They allow uh, portfolio managers to to rebalance very easily during during the trading day. Um, you can pinpoint a specific allocation. Uh, so they're really excellent portfolio building blocks. And and I think those are some of the key reasons why they've become so popular in portfolios. Yeah, I, I guess I mean I would say that with the proliferation of of the ETF business in Canada and the number of solutions and products that are now available in the market. Um, it hasn't just benefited retail investors, it's benefited advisors, obviously, in their business and, and, and uh, accessibility to uh, solutions that weren't available, you know, in, in many cases, even just five years ago. Um, but it's also it's also also sorry, it's also enabled the investment counselor portfolio managers to also uh, change the nature of their portfolio management as well. So so, you know, we talk about democratization of investing. But the ETF has actually democratized investing at all levels, not just not just at the at the end investor level, but at the at the retail portfolio management advisory level, at the ICPM level. Um, we've also had the introduction of alternatives uh, some three years ago, which has also in, which has also um, changed the accessibility of strategies. Very you know in some cases uh, you know. Uh, plain vanilla alternatives, but also in other cases, more complex, uh, you know, hedge fund type alternatives are available in hedge fund in, in, in ETF, uh, ETF format, yeah. formats. Um, but along with those products has been a significant learning curve. And can you talk about, you know, you, you, since you're, you're talking to both the portfolio manager at the, you know, and, and advisors at the brokerage level, and the investment counselor portfolio managers. Um, what are you seeing as the key competitive differences between the two types of portfolio manager that are out there? Um, so just to make sure I, I'm answering the question correctly, you want to know the like the competitive difference between like, an investment counselor family office versus um, a traditional investment advisory like a bank-owned brokerage? Well, I'm guessing, I mean, because we speak to, because we speak mainly to advisors in our, in our channel, um, since advisors now, advisors and portfolio managers that are at the brokerage firms, 
uh, are in fact competing with investment counselor portfolio managers. Um, there are some key differences, but but in essence, uh, in, uh, portfolio manager investment advisors now have really a, a great opportunity to compete uh, in the same playing field as the investment counselor portfolio managers. But can you can you speak to that? Is that is that are you seeing that? Is that something that's happening? Yeah, absolutely. Like that's definitely a trend that we've yeah. noticed over the last several years in terms of the uh, the, the bank owned brokerages. And there's been a tendency uh, for more advisors to get their portfolio manager designations either by going the CIM route or the CFA route. Um, and typically right. within their firms, there are certain guidelines that they would have to follow in terms of constructing portfolios. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is that it gives them a wider toolkit, right? Um, and they're able to construct portfolios and make changes to portfolios without having to call their clients every single time. And they could run a portfolio like, like a fund manager would run their fund, right? So it's given them right. more flexibility. It's given them more access to different products. And at the same time, it's put more onus on them in terms of due diligence because um, an advisor that's licensed as a portfolio manager has to prove that anything that they're putting in the portfolio, um, that they've done extensive research on it, number one, but also that it's the best product to meet their client's objectives. So there's really, there's more, uh, there's more homework, there's more legwork that goes into it. But at the same time, it gives them access to a wider toolkit um, and they have more more latitude in terms of in terms of making decisions. But it's at the same time, like you said, it's it's kind of leveled the playing field uh, between advisors and um, independent investment counselors because they're no longer tied to, let's say, internal uh, product like maybe, uh, right. you know, some, some advisors would be. So that's definitely the yeah, trend so that we've noticed and also helps make businesses more scalable as well. When an advisor becomes PM licensed, uh, they can then onboard more households. Um, it's, it becomes a lot more scalable to run the portfolios rather than sort of taking a piecemeal approach and, and uh, you know, um, every client would have a different portfolio. And that's very, very challenging to scale. And I know it's a pain point for a lot of right. advisors. So I think that that's also part of the reason why we've seen a trend towards uh, portfolio managers, um, licensed portfolio managers in, in the advisory space. Right. So in essence, um, I take it that that the evolution of ETFs, of the ETF marketplace, has really enabled advisors to be... So the advantage goes to advisors, in essence, right? I mean, ICPMs have, have been doing what they've been doing all along, um, uh, we'll get to the key differences, obviously, between the two and, and, and the different expectations, perhaps, that, that clients can, can, can hope for from either. But, but in essence, the advantage has gone to advisors, right? The toolbox, the toolbox now that's available to advisors has far more breadth and, and, and depth than, than used to be. And so now, uh, as you said, for advisors, the playing field has leveled. Yes, absolutely. Where, where, and, but the other yeah, thing too is yeah. uh, even for investment counselors, like they might have not been using ETFs to the extent that they are now when you when you compare 10 years ago. Right. So like you said, it's really a tool that's democratized investing like in, in many areas Period. of the industry, right? Not just not just on the retail advisory side, but also for um, you know, for, for smaller pension funds, for asset managers, for investment counselors. And they each use, use the strategies a little bit differently and are, I, I would say, gravitate towards different types of ETFs. Um, but I would say definitely like the, the ability to become a licensed portfolio manager, that's changed the game for investment advisors. Right. 
Um, and at the same time, like there's more strategies available. Yes, there's more legwork to be done, um, but there's a lot more tools available as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the tools and some of the support that we've put together um, to help them yeah, do that job we, better because their job has become harder, I would say, in the last decade because clients have become more fee sensitive, um, you know, with with social media as well. Like the news is available at, at your fingertips 24-7, uh, probably a bit too much. Right. Um, so there's really some some great tools to help advisors navigate that, to help them do their due diligence and make that easier for them. Uh, so I did want to maybe talk a little bit about those tools um, later on if we if we have some time. Yeah, I mean... That's that's a big part of your role is is you're actually consulting with advisors on how they're running their businesses and how they're running their their model portfolios and how to ameliorate their whole process. Um, what are some of the what are some of the things that that you've uh, what are you know what are some of the biggest challenges that you've been helping advisors overcome? Uh, so I think helping them reduce their fees has been really important in terms of uh, like product MERs. Um, so, you know, part of what I do is clients will sometimes share with me their their model portfolios and we'll help them look for opportunities where they could either uh, lower their fees, improve their performance, reduce risk or improve tax efficiency. And I always tell advisors that, you know, I won't tell you to make a change in the portfolio unless there's really a reason for it. Like, I won't tell you to change right. four quarters to a dollar just so that you have more uh, BMOZ tickers in the portfolio. It's really um, if there's an opportunity to to help their end client or to help them at the end of the day make their life a little bit easier um, or, or result in a better investment outcome for the client. So I spend a lot of my time um, doing portfolio reviews with clients. And I would say this year, especially given how challenging the markets have been, I would say even more so this year, because now there's kind of a silver lining with the markets being down is that it, it, investors are looking for ways to um, make their portfolios better. They're taking advantage of tax loss selling, right? So that's been sort of a silver lining right. is that it's it's kind of a good time to take stock of your uh, portfolios and look at where you're at and uh, see where you can maybe tweak or improve things a little bit. So that the tax law selling has been a really, really important conversation this year, especially with, you know, bonds and equities, like you mentioned, being down both, um, you know, to the magnitude that they are this year. I mean, we haven't seen anything like this since 1969. Um, so we're, we're talking a lot about tax law selling on the fixed income side. Um, you know, over the last year, it's been a really painful spot to be with interest rates um, being increased around the world. Um, so what we're telling clients is, you know, you don't want to get out of the asset class because while the central banks are hiking rates like crazy now, um, it, eventually it's going to trigger a recession. And, you know, looking a year out, it's going to be a very different situation. And there's actually the potential to make money on bond positions. Um, right. And so what we're now, now, yeah, now that there's actually some yield. Yeah. I mean, these are some numbers yeah. we haven't seen the likes of in, in a decade. Right. So, I mean, to give a few examples, right. like uh, clients are putting money now into um, into money market ETFs, into cash alternative ETFs. It was a record uh, inflow month last year in terms of the ETF business in Canada. In September, I believe it was $1.7 billion that went into um, you know, cash and cash alternative ETFs. And certainly um, at BMO over, over this last month in October, um, you know, we saw a very strong month in terms of flows, about a billion dollars right. of, of net new flows. Close to $800 million of that went into bond ETFs. And the remaining 200 went into equity. So we're starting to see a shift there because of that. Um, so we're definitely having a lot of tax loss selling conversations. And people are looking at the asset class a little bit more because of where yields are at, right? So if you're looking at a one to five year 
laddered corporate bond, all investment grade in Canada, the yield to maturity on that's about 5%. Now, if you're looking at, um, you know, a, a money market ETF, you're getting close to 4% on that. So these are numbers we haven't seen in, in many, many years. So we're definitely, we're, we're seeing clients put money there. Um, and then the other thing, the other part of the tax loss selling conversation is uh, we've been talking a lot about discount bond ETFs, because not only can you take advantage of that, that tax loss sale, but then the advisor could also go into something that's more tax efficient going forward. So it's sort of a one-two punch there. So you're taking taking advantage and, and harvesting the loss, but you're putting your client in something that's about 30% more tax efficient going forward. So the client's taxed on on the bond coupons and the bond coupons on discount bond ETFs are are significantly lower, uh, but the yield to maturity right. or the total return is uh, is very similar to the traditional bond ETFs. So that's one of the tax loss selling conversations uh, we've been having. Um, also other areas uh, in terms of tax loss selling, um, we've seen clients looking to replace individual stock positions where they might be down. So, um, you know, to name a couple of examples, like Facebook's been in the news that the Meta stock um, has had a very difficult time uh, recently. So we're seeing clients use ETFs to replace that, um, maybe looking to to NASDAQ. And with an ETF, what's kind of neat, too, is that the advisor will have the the currency flexibility or the ability to really pinpoint the, the currency exposure that they want. So they could choose to go hedged, to go unhedged, or they could even buy the U.S. dollar unit. So that's um, that's an added level of flexibility. And then they don't have this single name uh I guess, uh, uh, liability or exposure right. that they would have uh, with individual stocks. Um, another example is is the REIT sector in Canada. That's been hit really hard so far this year. So uh, one name that I was talking to a client about yesterday was Granite REIT and uh, talking about replacing that with our equal weight REIT CTF. And when you look at REITs and you look at REITs in Canada, um, actually equal weighting has tended to not only increase yields, but increase performance over time versus uh, cap-weighted indexes um, for that for right. particular sector. So these are a few of the examples for, for tax loss selling and some of the conversations that we've been having. Um, another example is, you know, we, we, we have conversations about where we can take individual bonds or individual preferred shares, which are very cumbersome to trade, and we can exchange them for units of the corresponding ETF. Um, so that's, uh, I think that's been another plus for advisors and PMs to really to help them make their businesses more scalable. We're talking to you about, you know, the differences in terms of um, retail flow and institutional flow. So I wanted to highlight just a couple of things there, a couple of trends that we're seeing, yeah, especially do. on the institutional side now. So um, fixed income is probably the fastest growing area of uptake with, with institutions. And when I say institutions, I refer to uh, asset managers, uh, family offices, and also um, pension funds, so asset owners. Um, and and we're seeing them increasingly use fixed income ETFs because of the added operational efficiency. Like I would say that when right. you're when you're talking about the advisory market in Canada, I would say the advisory market in Canada actually adopted ETFs quicker than the institutional side of things. Um, but now the institutions are really starting to uh, integrate ETFs and especially for fixed income. So because individual bonds are, you know, they're harder to trade, they're less liquid, It's there's less transparency right. there. Uh, that's one of the reasons or some of the reasons why we're really seeing institutions now gravitate towards fixed income ETFs and, and incorporate them in their portfolios. And they're also really, they're able to pinpoint, you know, specific exposures that they want, whether that be uh, you know, level of credit quality uh, or duration or even currency, like I mentioned, and they can make changes to the portfolios a lot quicker than they would be able to uh, with individual bond holdings. So we're starting to see a yeah, lot more. Yeah, because you actually have price discovery. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I 
didn't mean to interrupt you because you have, you actually have, you know, daily price discovery. So Erica, since you're having these conversations, uh, with advisors, uh, on tax loss selling, I'm just curious because there tends to be, uh, you know, a bias among investors that doesn't really favor selling, you know, some of their losing stock positions. I'm just curious to know if you're first of all hearing about differences in emotionality versus between uh, tax loss selling of individual stocks versus ETFs. I think it's probably much easier for an advisor to to talk their, you know, assuming they're not uh, uh, managing money on a discretionary basis, uh, that it's much easier for uh, an advisor to convince a client that tax loss selling, uh, for example, a market cap weighted index uh, in favor of an equal equal weighted index is much easier to do than, than getting out of Facebook, which is down uh, in favor of, you know, widening their, their exposure to the sector at a time when it's also very uh, uh, first opportune. But, you know, investors tend to be more attached to their stocks than they are to their ETFs. So I'm just wondering if there's, if there's a conversation there that, that, that you're having with advisors where they, they can help their clients take their, you know, emotionality out of making those tax loss selling decisions because they are very opportune. They are, they make, they make lots of logical sense, but they don't necessarily make emotional sense to, to the, to the client, to the end client. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that you bring up Pierre, because, um, like anecdotally speaking, absolutely. Like I could tell you, um, individual, like investors tend to be more attached to their individual stock right. holdings and, and married to them when they're, when they're down and saying, okay, well, I want to watch this recover. Um, and, and so, yes, you're absolutely right that I think for advisors and, and portfolio managers, it's, it's easier to make a switch from, let's say, one ETF to another. Um, but part of that conversation that we're having is, you know, is to take advantage of the tax loss and go into the same sector. So you're not giving up a potential rebound, but what you are doing is you're reducing the level of concentration risk right. in a portfolio and you're, you're reducing that risk by owning a basket of names instead of an individual name. So you're, you're less likely actually to overreact as well when things don't go well, because there's also a tendency for, you know, when, when individual names go, go down and are very volatile, some, some people panic and want to get out right. of them. So I think you're less likely to do that with, with an ETF. And it also makes it, um, you know, more scalable. Um, and it, it helps, I think the advisor convince the clients to stay invested when things do get, get rocky which I think is also important. Um, and then yeah. the other point I'll make there, just sort of as a, um, you know, another part to the conversation about, about individual stocks, a lot of people assume, and, and sometimes incorrectly, that you know, a lot of the growth in the ETF business has come at the expense of mutual funds, which is not necessarily the case. Like it's not that all money flowing into ETFs has come out of mutual funds. A lot of it's come out of individual of stocks and individual positions for that reason is because you know, there's there's actually less volatility, and and it's been proven that you know investors tend to have better outcomes owning a basket than concentrating themselves in individual names. Um, so then, you know, there's there's a lot of great research to back that up as well. Uh, so I wanted yeah. to make that point. Thank you. I, I, that's a great point. I think I think the uh, you, you know from a behavioral economic standpoint, behavioral finance standpoint, you know, having a portfolio that that doesn't cause you to have you know, emotional reactions too far to the left or the right, uh, you know, too, too excited or too sad, <laughs> too unhappy, uh, is a much, uh, is a much better long-term course of action. I think in terms of preventing, 
investors from either, you know, over-investing when markets, uh, over-risking when markets are, you know, as good as they were uh, most of last year, up to, up to last year, uh, and over, over-selling or over-panicking when markets are down like this year. Um, you know, that, that's really a key to, as you said, having a better outcome in the long term and, and you know, in terms of a better wealth, wealth management, wealth result uh, by, by having a smoother, a smoother ride. And that's absolutely, it's a huge part of the conversation we're having now. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of it is going back to behavioral finance. Yeah. And, you know, we were chatting a little bit about some of the tools that are available to advisors yeah. and portfolio managers now. And I would say like every meeting I'm doing now because of the type of market we're in, like at the beginning of the year and last year, it was like the markets were defying gravity, right? People were, right. everybody was a genius. Everybody was making money. People were just throwing more money in and, uh, and people were, were excited. And this year it's been very challenging, right? We've seen uh, both, both stocks and bonds, correct? Um, so we, we have put together a revamped series of tools on the BMO Canadian ETF dashboard. That's our value-added site for advisors right. and PMs. Um, and there's in particular... That's, that's, uh, that's B, BMOETFs.ca. That's right, yeah. Right? It's BMOETFs yeah. with an S.ca. Okay. And I spent a lot of my time in meetings with advisors and portfolio managers actually sharing some of these value-added resources that they could use with their endpoints. And in particular, right. we've, we've added this year um, a section called the Volatility Center. So there's a number of actually non-product, client-friendly pieces, um, really to help clients stay invested in a tough market, to put things into perspective, to keep them, you know, um, invested according to their their long-term plans. And uh, just to to share just a couple of examples, there's uh, one piece that that I love. My eyes nearly popped out when I first read this piece, but it shows you over the last 20 years, the impact of missing the five best days in the market and right. the impact of missing the 10 best days in the market and so on. But really those numbers were were eye-popping. I mean, if you're looking at somebody who started with $100,000 to invest in 2000, um, the difference, I mean, you're looking at instead of about 450,000 at the end of last year, you'd be looking at 286,000 if you missed the five best days, and you'd be looking at 210,000 if you missed the 10 best days in the market. Right. And, you know, the the reaction, um, even, even from advisors and PMs, has been equally eye-popping because there's a reminder too that, you know, these, the best days in the market, the, these can happen during a bear market as yeah. well. And we, we can't time it. We don't know when they're going to happen. The reality is nobody has a crystal ball. So on the flip side of that piece that shows you, okay, just how damaging it is to, you know, to jump out of the market when things get tough. Uh, the flip side of that is that, you know, it, it'll cost you and it'll cost you big. Um, Absolutely. Like so those are like, those are like unrecoverable losses. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to add, I, I, I just, sorry. And I, I I wanted to add that that often the 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 those those best days in the market are often right next to the worst the days worst. in the market, yeah. right? And so so if you're trying to avoid risk, you're taking the risk of uh, you're, you're you're there's an enormous opportunity cost of of Huge. risk avoidance. Yeah. yeah, and that that's that's a great tool. It's it's a I really love that one in particular. There's there's some great ones too about. Um, you know, staying invested for the long term. So showing, right. you know, over the last 30 years, what some of the major drawdowns in the market have been. And then on the flip side of that page, you'll see, 
you know, the the average annualized return for a balanced portfolio versus equities versus if you went to a, you know, even a five-year GIC over that period. And again, it's it's a staggering difference. There's another great piece on the the history of Canadian bull and bear markets going back to 1960, which is quite powerful. And it's a really easy visual too. It's not, it's not complicated to understand. It's not 10 pages of text. Yeah. Um, and it shows you that on average, bull markets in Canada have lasted you know, four times longer than the average bear market. So that's something to keep in mind. But also the average return of a bull market has been, I believe it's about 73% versus the average loss in a bull in a bear market, uh, which has been about minus 23% going back to 1960. So not only do bull markets last longer, but the returns tend to be a lot bigger than the respective losses of, of a bear market. So it's it shows you, you know, how important it is um, over the course of, of several market cycles and the big difference that that can make, you know, really staying invested for the for the long term. So that's another example of a piece that I that I love um, yeah. and that I've been sharing with clients um, on the ETF dashboard. There's also a tool uh, called the Big Picture. So you remember the index charts that were were up right. everywhere. Um, yeah. It's so it's kind of like a digital version of an index chart. But what's neat is that you can customize for a particular client's time horizon and their dates, and you can sort of play around with different asset classes and you can really bring that planning to life with the client and help them understand, um, you know, this is why we've built the portfolio in a certain way. And this is, this is sort of the long-term out- outcome that we're planning for. Uh, so that's, that's another great tool there. And, you know, you brought up, you know, in a difficult year, like, like this year where, you know, a lot of, a lot of advisors are not having fun conversations with their clients. Clients are looking at their statements and, you know, another bias that investors tend to have is they tend to anchor their portfolio values to the highest level it's ever reached, right? Which is not yeah. how things work. You can't look at that in isolation. Um, but another another piece is the uh, value of advice that's also on that volatility center. And that helps um, advisors and PMs articulate the value that they're providing and, and all the different aspects of the work they're doing and and really focuses on the end result and quantifies the end result for that investor and the difference, you know, overall for investors that use an advisor or PM versus the ones that don't. And again, very eye-popping. I mean, net worth tends to be about, I, I believe it's almost three times higher after a decade and a half of working with an advisor and sticking to right. a plan versus um, investors that do not. So I think that's uh, another great piece to highlight for for advisors up there. Yeah. Now, are you talking about the, um, the research by Cyrano? I'm I'm not sure. I think there was some of the research that was done um, by by BMO. Some of it might have been uh, external sources. I would have to double check in terms of that piece, in terms of what, uh, yeah. what the source of the but research yeah, is. It, I don't know off the top of my head. The uh, yeah, the research is conclusive. I think that that portfolio that sorry that that investors who are advised um, and stay advised uh, tend to do multiple times better than than those who aren't much b- so, better outcomes over time but if you can illustrate it that's that's even better yeah. i think i think that's a rather um, big deal I'm, I'm you know so much so much emphasis in the industry over historically not, not not i think it's changing but historically so much emphasis was placed on you know the 60 40 bond split um and I, I think very little emphasis was placed on the fact that that the interest rate risk of a 60-40 portfolio was closer to 90% equity uh, exposure in terms of equivalent risk budget. Yeah, um, that's a great and point. And if you, 
Is that something that you're working with advisors to to address? Is the risk budgeting within their portfolio constructions in terms of, um, you know, what the, you know, how how budgeting risk within a portfolio as opposed to budgeting between assets uh, is actually a much more um, is a much more improved way of looking at portfolio construction over the simple 60-40 bond split. I would say yes. I mean, that's definitely something we've been having conversations about for the last while. And even within that fixed income bucket, you know, we've been having conversations about the level of volatility in the different areas of the bond market. And so in a sense, yeah, when you're looking at at volatility and how certain areas of the bond market trade, um, you know, we're we're looking at risk budgeting there. So that's important. And I would also say, you know, if you look at our we, we have um, two series of, of model portfolios. We have our quarterly strategy report um, that our, our strategist, Alfred Lee, puts together. We've been running that right. model for 10 years now. Um, and uh, I just recorded our quarterly podcast about that model with him yesterday. And that question actually came up about, you know, the 60-40 portfolio. And, right. you know, instead of doing uh, a traditional 60-40 portfolio, what we've been doing in that model is we've been doing a a uh, 50-30-20 split where, you know, 50% is your equities, 30% is your fixed income, and then 20 would be sort of a hybrid or alternative bucket. Right. And we've found that that has actually helped to not only improve returns, but also reduce the level of volatility in portfolios by including exposure to to sort of, uh, you know, alternative asset classes. So a couple of examples that, you know, that we've been talking a lot about with clients um, so Alfred uses uh, preferred shares in his model to help increase right. uh, yield. Uh, but we've also been talking a lot with advisors about the impact of adding uh, infrastructure, let's say, because um, if you look at you know the last 10 years, um, the correlations with broad, broad equity and bond markets have been lower than other asset classes. So we're talking about, you know, I had a conversation with with that portfolio manager last week about you know, make, maybe taking down some of their international equity exposure, for example, and reallocating some of that um, towards alternatives, towards infrastructure in particular for that conversation. Um, and and that part of that was in an effort to uh, to reduce the overall risk of the portfolio longer term. Very interesting times we're in. Um, I, I, I want to ask you about the U.S. dollar because of its uh, obvious you know behavior this year and how strong it's been. Um, what are you recommending, or you know, what's your suggestion for investors uh, wondering what to do in light of the fact that the dollar is strong and could have a reversal? Uh, you know, some years, you know, over the next few years, um, as as policy changes in the, you know, everywhere, not just in the U.S., but as as potentially Fed, you know, Fed interest rate policy changes and central bank policy changes uh, affect the strength of the dollar um, one way or another, how do you, you know, what are a couple of ways to, number one, if, if you believe that the dollar is going to weaken at some point, how do you how do you position for that? And number two, if you believe that, uh, you know, if you want to take a neutral stance on on the dollar, what are some ways to consider? Yeah, so that's actually something that's figured quite prominently in conversations this year as well, just because of the fact that, you know, the U.S. dollar has been on a tear. We've had a ton of volatility in the markets. And in, in years like this, that's when the U.S. dollar is really, you know, that flight to safety currency. And it certainly has been um, this year. Um, so we have seen an increased interest in Canadian dollar hedged products. 
So clients can still access the underlying U.S. market, but they're stripping the currency out of that equation, given you know how how strong it's been um, right. this year. Um, in terms of portfolio construction, though, I would say there's there's a bit of a caveat there because I always ask um, my clients, you know, what is the time horizon of, of this intended investment? And I think that's an important part of the conversation as well because. Right. If it's sort of um, a portfolio building block, if it's intended sort of as a as a long term buy and hold position, in that case, investors are typically better off leaving their uh, U.S. dollar exposure unhedged. And if you look at you know, very very long term charts, it typically tends to result in uh, lower standard deviation and slightly higher returns because of stuff like we've seen over the, this last year, where the U.S. dollar has rallied in in a stressed market. Um, so that's why we see those those results over the long term. It adds important diversification there. Um, but if if you're looking at you know the the time horizon might not be a multi decade time horizon, and you know right. maybe you'll reassess the position a year from now, two years from now. I think that it could make a lot of sense to use the Canadian dollar hedge product just because of the strength of the U.S. dollar that we've seen, and we're certainly seeing that in terms of the the flows. Um, so in terms of you know, where we've seen money going, um, you know, broad indexes have always been um, a staple in terms of portfolio construction. Uh, but with an ETF, you have the added control over the currency. And in a lot of cases uh, for U.S. exposure, we'll offer three currency choices. So we'll offer the ability to go hedged to CAD, which strips out the, the currency out of the equation. You can go unhedged where you have the return of the underlying stocks plus the return of the U.S. dollar. Or you could go in U.S. dollar units, which are becoming increasing, increasingly popular, especially for um, wealthier clients that have U.S. dollars to invest in non-registered accounts. And I always tell advisors, you know, if, you're, if you want to hold on to some U.S. dollars and physical U.S. dollars, if you have physical U.S. dollars in the portfolio, it's actually often better to look at what's available trading as a .u, we call them here in Canada, right. rather than looking to what's available uh, trading on New York. And the reason is for those uh, high net worth clients, you're then not going to have U.S. estate tax exposure and you're not going to have to right. file additional T1135 paperwork. So those have become increasingly popular and there's more and more solutions. Uh, BMO has, I believe, 20 of them on the shelf at this point. So those, uh, we've been having a lot of conversations about those too for clients that, you know, maybe they want to hold on to U.S. dollars because they have, let's say, expenses in U.S. dollars. Maybe they travel there frequently or they have property there. Um, so that's another reason, you know, clients might want to hold on to some U.S. dollars and, right, and their absolutely. accounts as well. So I think there's there's different reasons. And, you know, when we have those conversations, it goes down to the, the portfolio construction level, but it also goes back to the, the client need. Um, so yes, tactically, I think it makes a ton of sense to, to hedge out the U.S. dollar right now. So we are seeing, you know, more hedge to CAD flows in terms of our products. Um, but there's also cases where, you know, if you're buying a drawn S&P 500 ETF and you're planning on holding that for your client for the next two decades, well, then you might want to consider going unhedged. Um, and then for the reasons we just discussed as well, you know, if the client has specific needs and has U.S. dollars to invest in the first place, then why not consider a dot you for, for those particular clients? Right. So coming back, I want to circle back to the tax loss selling conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, does the tax loss selling, uh, does, does it, does it make sense to use this opportunity that we have at this time to tax loss sell, uh, one currency based position in, in, in let's say S and P 500 index or TSX or not TSX, but, uh, let's say a U.S. index, uh, to switch from the U S dollar version to the hedge to CAD version. 
Yeah, that's certainly another way that uh, that people could look to take advantage of uh, of tax losses because right. you know, prior to this year, that would be eligible though with yes, CRA. Yes, yeah. Okay. So it, it's considered a deemed disposition, and because the currency exposure is different, it's not it's not considered you know an identical exposure. Right. So yeah, it would be eligible for tax loss selling. But we're in we're in a situation where you know prior to this year, there weren't that many tax loss selling opportunities. Like I spoke to a, no. lot of, a lot of people, a lot of portfolio managers that you know they didn't have they had deems. Right. So that a bond right. market like we have this year, you know, and, and going back to that history of Canadian bull and bear markets, there's more good years, historically speaking, than there are bad years. So when a bad year comes along, that's sort of a silver lining. And that is another opportunity that people can look to, okay, where take stock of where I have losses in my book. And and currency is that is a great way to do that, especially given the strength of the U.S. dollar rally that we've had this year. So, yeah, we are having uh, we are having yeah. conversations about that and seeing that in terms of the flows as well. So yeah, so a really I mean, it's a tr- point yeah. to, you know, to consider. I, as you were as you were talking about it, I was thinking, you know, just uh, maybe, you know, I should ask you about clarifying that because because it's not that you necessarily want to get out of all your U.S. dollar exposure, but you could definitely diversify some of your currency exposure by taking advantage of the tax loss selling opportunity that, that's that exists today. Um, you know, in 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 more than one dimension. I mean, so if you're looking at it like you know, playing it like a three dimensional chessboard. Um, you know, you have all these different layers of, of thought that you can apply to portfolio construction or reconstruction um, that are really interesting right now, given given the climate we're in. And tax alpha is one way that advisors can add yeah. value for their clients, right? So there's the portfolio management aspect, yeah. but there's also the tax management. Um, and then behavioral coaching, you know, going back to that, like that's uh, that's probably one of the, the largest areas. So these are three really important things that advisors can be doing for their clients right now. Yeah, and to set themselves apart from from their competition, I think as well. So, Erica, thank you very much. That that was, uh, I think, you know, those were some very revealing insights. Um, what what are some of the? Uh, did we cover all of the tools that you wanted to talk about today? Um, so, I, I did put together, you know, just a series of of points and sort of takeaways in terms of what what we're seeing in the markets right now. Um, so, we spoke about. Right. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, investors and portfolio managers allocate to cash as an asset class again. So, you know, last month I would say you know, cash is king, right? We're, we're seeing that because the interest rates are that much more attractive right now. Um, so I would say, you know, a reminder, don't, it's, it might be tempting to go all to cash, um, but to have, you know, and we've, we talked about re- the reasons why that's not a good idea. Um, yeah, it's potentially a very dangerous move. It's potentially very dangerous, but yeah. to have, you know, maybe a, a slightly higher cash allocation and keeping some dry powder and getting getting paid while you're sitting on that maybe slightly higher allocation to cash, I don't yeah. think it's necessarily a bad idea because now you're you're looking at numbers, like I said, that we haven't seen in uh, probably a decade in terms of uh, returns on on cash or cash-like um, type uh, strategies. And and certainly in the ETF space, there's, there's a lot of choice now in terms of ultra short-term bonds or money markets. So cash is king. I would say yes, but there's a caveat there. Make sure you don't go yeah. all into cash and, and make sure you stay invested. But there's a lot of great tools. Don't go um, don't go completely don't risk off. Deep in there. Yeah, because yeah. things can turn around um, yeah. and we can't really predict when that's going to happen. Uh, so the second takeaway, bonds are back in a really big way. I mean, we've seen essentially a reset in the bond market. So I think there's going to be some some actually really good opportunities there going forward. And I would say, you know, we're, we're seeing that interest not not just on the retail side, but also on the institutional side. Um, because you're looking at you know much more attractive yields again right now. Um, well, yeah, we've gone we've gone from from uh, Tina, you know, there is no alternative to having tons of alternatives. Yeah. And bonds are competitive again against exactly. other assets, right? And 
Um, I mean, both tactically and, you know, yield-wise. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of yields, that's another point that I wanted to bring up because, um, you know, enhanced income solutions uh, remain really popular in terms of right. our product suite, but also in the market overall. Um, and there's several reasons behind that. So we're talking about when I when I say enhanced income, I'm talking about things like covered calls, uh, put writing strategies or premium yield strategies, which use a combination of uh, call selling and put selling. Um, and I would say those are are very popular right now for a number of reasons. I mean, some of those key reasons, the aging demographic, right? So there's more people, you mentioned this at the beginning of our chat, there's more people that are relying on the cash flows of their investments. Um, right. And these not only give that that higher cash flow, they give a nice monthly cash flow, but it's also really tax efficient because the options premiums on the covered call strategies, for example, are taxed as capital gains. So I think that's that's really compelling. Um, but also, you know, inflation being what it has been this year, it's put more focus onto uh, strategies that generate a higher level of, of current cash flow. Um, so dividend-oriented strategies have been quite popular and they've actually performed really well in this market. Um, and, you know, the the covered call um, high dividend portfolios that we run, they have that dividend focus, but they're also, they have they have a dual return stream. They have their, this, right. they return, they, they're, they they're yielding the um, the underlying dividends of the stocks, but they're also generating that additional cash flow from selling the options. Um, and in volatile markets like we're living this year, uh, that tends to translate into higher option premiums. Um, right. So this type of market is very attractive for option writing strategies. You're you're turning market volatility into a source of returns and into a source of tax efficient cash flow for clients. So those have been really really popular. Um, and in terms of our lineup at BMO. Uh, we're actually the largest manager of covered call ETFs in the world, which is pretty crazy <laughs> to wrap your head around. Uh, and here That's in Canada, we manage about $10 billion of options-based strategies. Um, we represent about two-thirds of the AUM in the Canadian industry. Um, and strategies that have been really popular, like uh, owning the Canadian banks with a covered call overlay. I mean, stuff like that's yielding about seven over 7% right now. Um, and that's taxed as Canadian dividends and as capital gains. So really, really powerful tools in terms of generating that tax efficient cash flow. Another one that's been really popular this year has been our, our ZWU, which is a covered call in the utility sector. I mean, it's a defensive sector, which is is pretty in demand right now, given what's going on in markets. Um, so that's yielding about eight and a half percent right now. So these tools have, have been really, really popular. A lot of them have you know over 10 years of track record. Um, and we're not just seeing investment advisors use these. We're also seeing family offices um, look to these types of strategies because of their tax efficiency and the, the higher level of, uh, of yield as well. So that's another thing that I would I would highlight. Um, so there's definitely a few reasons behind their popularity. Um, we spoke about the... Uh, the I've, I've always been, you know, Erica, I've always been surprised at, at how long the adoption runway for these enhanced income, uh, you know, solutions has been. I mean, buy right strategies have been around for a very long time. And, and um you know, I, I guess you know. I guess we were all in love with the stock market for so long, and and you know, afraid to give away some of that upside uh, in return for yield. But but I think for as you said, for the you know for the uh, pre-retiree or retiree uh, cohort, you know that that's that's a really really important and essential option that's available is, yeah. is the uh, the covered call you know overlay strategy. Yeah, and if you look at would... the kind of markets we're in right now, like if we're if we're in a down market or if we're in a volatile sideways market, the, these types of strategies actually tend to perform very well in in those markets. Um, sure, I, I mean because know. of the uncertainty, the the height, you know, the slight, the increase heightened volatility or or increase in in overall volatility is is definitely providing 
uh, higher premium income. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, one important thing that goes back to sort of portfolio construction, um, not all buy rate strategies are managed the same way. So when I'm talking to advisors and PMs, it's, it's really important if you're going to be considering this type of strategy, you want to look at what's under the hood and how they're being managed. Right. Um, so in terms of the way that, that we do it, you know, we want to be really mindful of capping that potential upside. Um, the, the goal really is we write on about half of the portfolio. We're not writing on the entire portfolio. And that's an important distinction to make um, because some of, the, some of the strategies available, they might write on 100% of the portfolio and they're, you're giving away more upside. So what we try to do is right. we want to sort of hit that sweet spot between, yeah, we want to we provide the additional yield, but we also want to capture the majority or, or as much upside as possible over time. So we're only writing on half the portfolio. Another really important point is that we're always writing above current market prices. And these things are being reassessed on a daily basis um, because we want to be able to provide a mixture of the income and the growth to clients. We don't just yeah. want to provide the income, but then not have any growth potential. So I think that's a really key point to make. I mean, sometimes if you're if you're analyzing different uh, options strategies and different ETFs available, some of them might have yields, you know, upwards of nine or ten percent right now. So you always, I would say, for the advisor and PM, it's really important to look under the hood and to find out are is the management team writing on a hundred percent of the portfolio? Right. Are they writing? at the money options, because these types of things can cap the return even more. So even though that yield might be really eye-popping, uh, you're not going to get that that upside capture that that you want. So ideally, you would get a mix. You don't want to sacrifice all of the growth potential. So I, I would say that that's a really important point to highlight when you're looking at these types of option strategies. Um, so a couple tools that we have for advisors and PMs that are that are interested in this type of strategy, uh, we publish our um, monthly derivatives and volatility report, which okay. I, ha I haven't seen anything that shows this degree of transparency on on options based strategies. So the advisor, you know, by looking at this one pager, you can see how these strategies are positioned. Um, and you can also see, you know, the mix of, of the yield coming from the percentage coming from the dividends versus the options. And you can see the consistency over time, but you can also see how, how nimble and how active they are in terms of, you know, uh, the the strike prices and how far out of the money they are in response to market conditions. So when when markets are very volatile, our PM team can actually write the options further out of the money because we're getting we're able to get fatter premiums. But then we're able to actually capture more of the upside um, when the markets turn around. So uh, that that tool is a fantastic tool for advisors and PMs looking to you know wrap their heads around that strategy. It's it's really transparent. It's easy to understand. We also publish a five over five report that advisors can actually use with their clients. And it's our top five picks of ETFs yielding over 5%. And that's published also on a quarterly basis. So these are the types of tools that we can provide to help support um, to support advisors in those conversations. Yeah. So I, I think well, that's an important thing to, uh, to highlight. Um, I think we hit everything else Really, I mean, we talked about the tools, the support, the trends that we're seeing, the tax loss selling. I mean, these are great, uh, great, great things to keep in mind after a year like this year. But I think, you know, one of the key things that I would that I would want to highlight um, is is definitely that volatility center in those tools to help advisors have those challenging conversations, given how difficult markets have been this year, and to help their clients stay invested in the importance of that over time. If I could leave. You know, one impression yeah. today, I think it would be that one because I think that that's the biggest difference they could make for their clients. Well, I I, I uh, agree with you. I think the you know having the ability to put things into a uh, to, to to be able to present things to to your clients visually uh, is very powerful. And and Erica, I'm I'm you know I'm so impressed by 
what you and and uh, you know the team at at uh, BMO Global Asset Management um, ETFs um, are doing. I think the uh, the you. portal, the BMOETFs.ca portal, is impressive uh, and and does offer advisors really valuable tools for uh, especially navigating this market that we're in right now. And um, I guess one final point that I would add is is that you know. It's very important, I think, to remember also this is this is no time to abandon the sixty forty portfolio. You know, if there was a time, it was probably the end of last year. <laughs> you know, hindsight twenty twenty, right? Yeah, hundred percent, right? But but uh, you know, um, I was I was particularly impressed by by uh, Steve Cohen's assertion, uh, Steve Cohen from SAC. Uh, when he was asked what he thought of the sixty forty portfolio, his response was very surprising. It was it was that this is a great time to be a sixty forty investor, right? And I wasn't expecting it. I don't think the host was expecting the, the the answer to that question to be that. But the point was very simple: stocks are depressed, bond prices are depressed. There's yields. Um, you know, anybody coming into the market right now, sixty forty is fairly attractive. Is a fairly attractive proposition. So what I get from that is okay if you're a, if you're a well-heeled investor being invested, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and you're worried about your current position in the market, um this is definitely not the time to exit risk and you know, despite the emotions that are running right now to and and the feeling of doing the, the feeling like that's what you need to do given given the regime change that we're we're sort of encountering right now. But that that was my point. My point is this is no time to exit risk. The time to have exited risk was the end of last yeah. year. And if you did it, wonderful. And but if, if you, you haven't, didn't, you have to hold on and stick <laughs> to your guns. It's not the time to yeah. uh, to reinvent the wheel. And, yeah. you know, it, it really highlights the cyclical nature of markets. Um, you know, it's tempting always to say this time's different because this, this, this. But the reality is that markets are highly cyclical. And, yeah. you know, just because bonds have been a tough place to be over the last year, um, I don't. I don't believe that's going to be the position that we're going to be in a year from now. So I think it's actually a, a really big yeah. opportunity to for investors to start looking at over the next. Yeah. You, uh, over the use next the year. tools. Yeah. Uh, use the tools that are available. Educate yourself if you need to, and you know, take advantage. By all means, take advantage of the tax loss selling opportunity that's available today, which is which is you know an opportunity to move your assets around from from you know, one risk budget to another and also currency. And also, you know, potentially yeah. make your um, portfolios more efficient and more scalable yeah. over time. I think that's, uh, you know, key takeaway and, a, and an opportunity that the tax loss selling in these bad markets are presenting us with right now. It's sort of that silver lining, you know. So many. Yeah. So many right now. Erica, uh, it's been really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank Thanks, you so Kara. much for your... Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for your valuable time and your insight. It's my pleasure. At the end of the day, we uh, we want to we want to help our clients do the best that they can for for their clients, and I think that uh, we're we're very passionate about that. So, uh, you know, we put together these these great tools, and and we're happy to have that conversation anytime about how we can how we can help you do that. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.